Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Thanks for uh, fighting through the parking issues this morning. I got here a little earlier than some, and I still had to park way out on the street. And so thank you for being patient through whenever we're off-site like this. I hope that when the time comes, if it should come, days like this would motivate us to get serious about getting a building one day. I just hope that is the case. So thank you for making the effort to be here with us this morning. Uh, If you are newer to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as lead pastor here. And we have been going through a, just beginning a sermon series called Life on Life. It's a study of the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy. And as I said last week, when we go through this series, I'm not going to try to say everything that First Timothy says. Because there's so much there, we could just go days and days on each text. I want to look very, very in a disciplined way through the lens of Life on Life ministry. The way one person touches the life of another person towards spiritual growth. And so that is the lens through which I'm going to try to discipline myself to approach each text. And as a result, there will be a lot that's left unsaid, even though the text is clearly saying it. So if you are a Bible scholar and that's very distracting to you, I want to give you my apologies in advance. Just trust me that I see what else is there, but I'm not going to say all of it. Okay? I want to read through, and today's message is called Under the Influence. I know in your programs it says Influential Choices, but that was a really boring title. I think Under the Influence is a little more um, maybe attention-getting, and perhaps it's a little more accurate. Because when somebody's under the influence of something, one of the hallmarks of that is they don't quite have control of all of their own faculties. They are clearly, through that influence, being controlled by something else. And I think that speaks more to the heart of what 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7 talks about. So let's look at that passage. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Remember, this is Paul talking to Timothy. Or to devote themselves to myths And endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers. I'm sorry. There you go. They want to be teachers of the law but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. When Paul established the Christian community in the great city of Ephesus, he spent an extraordinarily long time there, several years in fact, rooting and establishing that church community. And he had a very, very special place in his heart for that church. He loved that church dearly, and when he had to leave them, it was one of the most emotional accounts in the story of Paul's life recorded for us in Scripture. He uncharacteristically shows his feelings, which is not something Paul did all the time. I suspect Paul might have been part Korean because he really had a hard time as a male 
showing his full feelings. But once in a while, he got carried away with himself, and you would see that passion and those feelings roar out. And that was the case when he was saying goodbye to them. When he came out of two years of imprisonment and revisited the church in Ephesus, he was really disheartened to see that some false teachers had risen up and had done great damage to the faith of the people in that great church. He dealt very decisively with the key troublemakers. And then what he did was left Timothy in charge so he can go on and do other ministry. And Timothy was now left in this difficult situation to lead the church through its recovery process. And that's the occasion of the writing of this letter. Now, it's understandable why false teachers rose up. Because for the three years that Paul was there, he was such a presence. There are just certain people in this world that have this mysterious quality about them. I guess we could just call it presence. When they're in the room, you feel it. There's a weight to them, a sense in which your attention is drawn to them. You take seriously, you believe the things they're saying. They don't just feel like they merge into the background scenery. Paul was such a person, and when he was with them, things felt right, and the teaching went out very smoothly. But when someone like Paul leaves the church, he leaves a big void. And in that space that Paul left behind, a number of other very good talkers, other would-be teachers, rose up to fill that void. Now, not content to live under Paul's shadow, they needed to make this teaching their own. You know what I'm saying? They put their little special sauce on it. And so they began to say, well, Paul said that all the time. If I just say all this stuff, I'm just repeating what Paul said. What can I bring to the table? Now, when you're dealing with something like Scripture, you've got to be careful whenever that motive stirs your heart. I say this to all my friends who are pursuing PhDs in biblical studies and theology. To get a PhD, you've got to say something nobody's said before. Nobody gives you a PhD for mimicking other people. But when you're talking about the Word of God, be very careful about this desire to put your own mark on everything. And I think that's what happened, was these guys wanted to distinguish themselves from Paul, and they rose up, and people were hungry for a real voice once Paul left, and so that's what happened. Now, at the face of it, this whole episode is actually the reason why 1 Timothy was written to begin with. The false teachers are creating all kinds of trouble. And at the face of it, it looks like the main issue here is bad teaching. That the main problem is that a, a bunch of teachers rose up in the church who are telling people something that wasn't true. And yes, that is there. But I think underneath all of that, really at the heart of this, especially when you look through life on life, is this issue of influence. The issue of influence. In the church at Ephesus, there were several problems. One, the leaders who were supposed to be in charge, the men who were given authority and influence, were not using it to protect the church. So there was a failure of influence on the part of those who were supposed to guard the church. And then there was a problem with wrong influence. Men who should not have had such power were rising up and using whatever influence they could find to lead the church astray for their own purposes. And finally, there was a problem because the church themselves let these people in. Here's the thing, okay? False teachers are a problem, but they're only a problem insofar as the people of God let them keep teaching. 
The real power in a false teacher is the willingness of people to receive what they're saying as the truth. And the easiest way to shut up a bad teacher is to walk away and stop listening. That's true of the people giving advice in your life. That's true of any voice that wants to influence you, is that if they are telling the truth, you will keep giving them power if you stay there and let them keep talking. The real power of a teacher is found in the willingness of the student to continue listening. I think most people like to consider themselves fairly independent thinkers. Raise if you feel like you're kind of an independent thinker. You don't, you're not a sheep just, whatever everybody else does, that's what I'm going to do. Now, this is especially true of teenagers. Every teenager swears they're different. I'm unique. I listen to music. No one, oh, everybody's doing that. I'm not going to do it. Every teenager swears they are of their own mind. I am a brilliantly independent, unique person. But as adults, you watch them and go, my gosh, you are so like everybody else. You just found a different group to be just like. You want to see a really, the person who's truly unique, nobody will talk to him. Because they're like, that guy's weird. He doesn't fit any of our categories. We love to imagine ourselves to be people who generate our own thoughts. We believe that all our choices are our own. That we're impervious to the messages of advertising and marketing. It's so naive, but the reason advertising works, the reason the lies of Satan have effect, is because all of us truly believe we are impervious to any outside influence. That at the end of the day, I choose what I like. I decide what I listen to, where I go, what I wear. I think that's in part the reason why the British writer and comic book author Warren Ellis said these words. Listen to these words. If you believe that your thoughts originate inside your brain, now cue this sarcastic voice, do you also believe that television shows are made inside your television set? I imagine if ancient people saw television, they'd they'd think that we had shrunk people and put them inside of a window, a little box. But the television is really a conduit, a reflector of content broadcast from somewhere else. And I think that's really a telling statement. We all love to believe that we generate our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own choices. I'm wearing this because I like the way it looks. That's partly true. I wouldn't be caught dead in your outfit today. But I'm also wearing it because others have shaped me. Notice this is blue and white, not pink and green. And that's because I used to wear pink and green in the 80s when I wanted to be a preppy, but that's just not who I want to be projected as anymore. I just read an article this week on the science of menu design. Even when you go to a restaurant, you think you are completely in control of what you're ordering, and to some extent, yes, if you don't like fish, they can't make you order fish. But I'm astounded at the amount of science and forethought that goes into even just designing a simple menu, and the way that so much of what they do is driven to push you towards the decisions they want you to make. There are certain items they don't make much money on, and other items that they have a high margin of profit on, and they have found ways to get you to order that as much as possible. The point of all this is that our thoughts and our choices are more shaped by outside influences than we like to admit. I'm not saying you're a drone and you don't have a mind. What I'm saying is the person who believes that they don't 
have any susceptibility are the ones most shaped by the Kool-Aid. It's the person who thinks that they think for themselves at every point that has probably already come such so under the hypnosis of others, they don't realize the difference between their voice and the voice of the world around them. The obvious influences are easy to spot. I compulsively clear my plate at dinner. Even when I'm not hungry, I will finish my food. And when I was in college, I was so distracted by wasted food, I would eat other people's uneaten pizza crust. That's disgusting, I know. I didn't enjoy it, but I would see all my friends eat just the pizza and leave this pile of crust and like... Man, that could feed a whole family somewhere. And I would sit there after the party and I'd just nibble and I'd eat all the crust. Why? Because my mother very overtly drilled into my head, don't waste food. My father echoed that message. And so it was one of those, I could see it coming a mile away. I think my parents don't want me to waste food. And it was so obvious that I received it, I internalized it. It has become a part of my own voice. And now I tell my children, don't waste food. They still do, but uh, I guess I'm not as good a, a, t- a father as my father was to me. But the subtler influences are not as easy to spot, are they? We are being shaped by people and voices and things that we don't even realize are shaping us. Let me give you some examples. I, I've met people like this. The man who obsessively pursues wealth and success, no matter what he achieves, it's not enough. He seems driven almost in his rabid fashion to get more and more and more. And as I get to know the person, what I discover is it's not even about the money or the achievement. He has been yearning all his life to receive one word of unfiltered approval from his father. Just one time for his dad to look at him and believably say to him, Man, I am so proud of you. Of all the sons I could have had, I'm glad you're my boy. And there are men who spend their entire earthly life never hearing those words from their dad. Because there was something else they w- their dad wished they would become. And they didn't become that. No matter what they achieve in the area that they chose, they cannot make their dad proud of them. And you may think that you are pursuing success because you're driven and you're ambitious and you're talented. But that subtle, indirect influence is that all your life you've been driven by a desire to receive the approval of your father. There are people who don't realize just how much looking at Facebook has completely shaped the way they try to live their lives. Oh my gosh, look at them. That looks so awesome. Why don't we do that? we got to do that right now. Honey, pack up the kids. We are going to the pumpkin farm because they go to the pumpkin farm. Their family looks so happy. We would be happy if we went there. I, I will confess I fall prey to that sometimes because Facebook is the highlight reel of our lives, isn't it? Nobody shows, look, that's my wife's face after she's really mad at me. Um, just want to share that on Facebook. This is the day we're having. How about you? Nobody puts that stuff out there. You don't realize how much the images and stories on Facebook aggregated by a hundred, all your friends broadcasting their best moments, and you're like, why does my life stink? And you may not verbalize it, you may not even be cognitively aware of it, but you are being shaped so profoundly by the images and the gestalt statement about what life is like for people. You are being shaped by that, and you're trying without realizing to have that life too. 
What about the person who leaves the church in a huff? They come across some hypocrites and they're like, you know what? This is not for me. And they leave the church, but they don't just leave that church. They leave church altogether. They leave God. Now, I understand if that entire church was full of horrible, toxic people, not one redemptive human being in the entire congregation, good on you. You should leave. But if that's all you see is the negative person, the bad apple, and it so discourages you, you can't even be near God anymore. I'm going to tell you right now, you have given an incredible amount of power to those bad apples. You may think you're making your own choices, but you have already chosen to let those bad apples have the loudest voice in your life. There are good people in that place representing God, but you've chosen not to see them because the very people that discouraged you have all the power in your life. Do you understand then that though we are shaped by so many outside influences, many of them are undetected by us? I wonder if you sat down one day in a period of uninterrupted quiet and just thought about all the influences shaping the kind of person you're trying so hard to be. Do you know why social media has taken off? Because it's given every human being the opportunity to be their own PR manager, to project a publicly consumed image. And this is not just who I am, it's who I long to be seen as. I get to shape my public persona now and do it in high def digital color. The heart of it is the stewardship of influence. That's what life on life is. That everybody is under the influence of somebody. And when I have the privilege of having influence in another person's life, there are a couple things I have to be very, very careful about in order to honor God in the stewardship of that influence. Let me give you a couple quick points and we'll end here. One is that the the false teachers were false because their content was bad. There was something seriously wrong with their message. I remember uh, when my daughter Jordan first started driving a car on her own. (sighs) Those are rough days for me. Um, But I remember the first time she was going to drive on the highway to go to Woodfield on her own. I was so verklempt over like this idea. She's going to be on the highway merging and all that. And you know that that interchange from 90 getting onto 53 South 290. that's That's a very, very tough intersection. So the whole time I'm writing her maps, I'm repeating over and over, and I'm drilling into her what to do so that she doesn't freak out. The problem was that when you get older, stuff starts to get a little jumbled up here. And I kept saying 90 West instead of 90 East. Now, you've got to understand, where we live, there's nothing West of us except Iowa. I mean, just, there's no reason to go West from where I live. And yet I kept saying 90 West And because she's my daughter and I'm her dad and she believes everything I say, she took me at face value and she went 90 west and she was like halfway to Rockford and she's like, Dad, um, isn't Woodfield supposed to come up sooner than this? And I realized it was my mistake, not hers. See, this is the danger of bad content when you have influence, is that the people that you're influencing believe you. It's not just they have a bad day. Their whole lives start to get shaped by the things you're saying. If you are a parent, you have no idea the profound power you wield in your hands to shape another person's life. Every decision, every thought, every attitude you have shapes 
your children's lives. That's the power of influence. And if your message is off, it gets multiplied in not just your life, but the life of another. Paul clearly points out that the main problem is false doctrines. That's, that word false doctrines, those, that pair of words there, it translates a Greek word that may be better translated this way. It's another teaching of a different kind. Literally different teaching. Here's what he meant. These guys are not riffing on a theme I gave. You know, like, you know how you do a remix of a good song and it still kind of sounds like the original song? That's a good remix. When they do a new twist and it sounds nothing like the original song, come on, cut it out. What they're doing is not expanding on the teaching of Paul, which would have been a very good thing, but they were giving something that was a variant of it. In other words, they took the gospel and didn't just give more, they gave something categorically different. So that at the end of it all, This was not New Testament Christianity at all. It shared the vocabulary of Christianity. It sounded vaguely spiritual, but if you look at the content of the message itself, there was nothing that resembles the heart of the teaching of Jesus Christ or the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Nothing that reflects the heart of what New Testament Christianity looks like. And can I just say with humility, I think the same thing has been happening to a North American Christianity for a very long time. So many extraneous things have been fused and grafted into the gospel message that today, if we were to preach the pure gospel as Jesus spoke it, if we were to teach the word of God and give a picture of New Testament Christianity without any filters, It would overwhelm us. It would be almost subversive and foreign to us. And I think that does happen because in some churches, I hope ours being one of them, from time to time we take off the gloves and we swing for a TKO. We're going for it. We are really aiming to um, recast a vision for New Testament Christianity, pure and biblical, what it's supposed to look like even in this modern era. And when it happens, too often we have been programmed to think, oh, all right, calm down, dude. All right, we get it. You're showing us the epitome. You're showing us the extreme case as a symbolic lesson. We get it. So God wants us to be like this. And I think what God's spirit would say to us is, I don't want you to be like this. I want you to be this. Don't just mimic some version of this. I'm showing you this is what it looks like to follow my son in this broken world. It's not comfortable. You're not going to be popular, but this is what it looks like. And I think we have mingled so many other things with the gospel that what passes for Christianity in America today in many cases doesn't bear a strong resemblance to New Testament Christianity. It's a different faith than the faith the Bible describes. It's not an expansion of it. It's not a variation on the theme. It is something other than New Testament Christianity. In fact, John Piper and Mark Driscoll once were at a uh, conference in Minnesota that I was attending, and they came right out and said, these guys in the emergent camp that are in, in talking about post-modernity and all that, I don't know if I agree with their position, but here's what they, they said for the first time in a public forum, this is a new religion. 
It sounds like Christianity, but it's not Christianity at all. It's another religion altogether, and we need to at least be aware of it. We don't know what these myths and genealogies were exactly. I've read a dozen accounts of what each scholar believes they are. I don't know, and frankly, I don't care. Because I think what they really are about is they symbolize something. They produced endless conversation and speculation. And there are a lot of people who love this sort of thing. You know, they, you know the whole, like, who would win in a fight, pirates or ninjas, right? And <laughs> Yes. Heath votes for pirates, right? But who really cares? And then can you prove it? I don't know. What does it gain you in life unless you're, in, you're, you're a pre-piracy major at the University of Illinois and you actually intend to make a career out of piracy? Who really cares? And yet it is fun to stay up to 4 a.m., getting literally red in the face at your stupid friends because they think ninjas could be pirates. And it's sort of like that. It produces all kinds of interesting intellectual gymnastics. It's fun for conversation, but at the end of the day, it is absolutely worthless for real life. It will not help you in any substantive way be a human being in a broken world under the authority of God. And what he said was, that's fine outside in the marketplace, at the cafes, that's all great. But in the body of Christ, in the house of God, for the teaching to be that vacuous, that meaningless, is unforgivable. It's good if a sermon is interesting. It's wrong if a sermon is only interesting and it doesn't help you to grow in Christ. And so content matters. What we say to people matters. And if we get it wrong, we are accountable for that error. But let me also give you a second problem with these false teachers. A second problem with the false teachers was bad intent. We have bad content. I'm I'm trying to be a little clever here. Now we have bad intent. Paul says, in sharp contrast To these false teachers, look, he says, here's my whole motivation in telling you to root out these false teachers. They are a poison in the church. They are a poison in the church. And you need to root them out. And he says, here's my motive for saying it. It's not prejudice. Do you realize that it would have been very easy for the cynics in Ephesus to say this? They they could easily say, you know, Paul, you're just salty because you used to be the man around here. Now there's other guys who people are following and that just ticks you off. You can't stand that people like other teachers. Maybe it's the way a pastor feels when they've been preaching their heart out for years and then they invite a guest speaker and that guest speaker gives one sermon saying exactly what you've been saying all your life and they're like, that guy was awesome. My life has changed forever from that one sermon. And you're like, <sighs> all right, that's great. And maybe people thought that's what was going on with Paul. Is you just can't stand that anybody else is as good as you. And Paul says, shut up. It's not insecurity. It's not prejudice that's driving it. It is love. I care about the church. I care about the consequences of these ideas on the human condition. I care that if you believe this, your life, your actual life, that life you care about, will be worse for it. And because I love you, 
I cannot bear the idea of you falling under the influence and authority of people who don't honor Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, I am not in ministry to serve myself, to gather a following, to grow my empire, to become famous and wealthy. And I'll tell you right now, it's possible to have all those motives in American ministry and succeed. But what Paul's saying is, that is not why I'm doing it. I'm in it for Christ and for you. I think it's possible to say some very hard things to people. Things that would get you punched in the face in a bar. Things that are so personal, so indicting, so confrontational that most people would kick you out of the house. But if you love them, and if your zeal is not to be a voice of manipulation and power, but if your desire is to honor God and to love people, I've seen in my own experience, it's possible to say some very hard things to some very hurt people and still have them receive what you're saying. In sharp contrast to Paul's motives, he says these other guys... They may sound like they care about you. They may have lots of bluster. They may say things and then pound the desk and look like they really know what they're talking about. They might even use really big words you don't know how to define. But at the end of the day, their main desire is to be teachers of the law. They don't want to teach the law. They want to be the teachers of the law with all the social status, the relational influence that that would afford them in that culture. In Jewish culture, even in post-Christian, post-Messiah Jewish Christian culture, to be a rabbi was still a position of great power. I marvel today, not anymore at our church. You guys have been well-trained. You know not to show me any extra respect. You really know how to not show me any extra respect. But I travel to these other churches, especially in the West and East Coast, and everyone's like, oh, pastor, you don't have to get your own food. And they run and they bring me all these things I don't want to eat, and they're doing me favors. I'm like... Just let me get my own plate. They won't let me clear anything. They won't let me carry my own suitcase from the car to my hotel room. And there are people who are embarrassed by that, and there are people who love it. (laughs) Yeah, carry my bag, boy. And that's just in the heart of some people. They love it. They love when they're being kowtowed to. They love five-star service. They love, oh, we're so sorry, sir. That was totally our mistake. Here, let us copy this. Let us do this for you. Some people love the white glove treatment. They thrive on it. It makes them feel powerful, alive. And other people are embarrassed by it. And what Paul is saying is those other guys, they stay at the Four Seasons, man. There are those guys who expect everywhere they go, that people will roll out the red carpet for them. They are not in it to serve anyone but themselves. And that's at the heart of their motivation. And in fact, if you read later in this letter, it's clear these guys were becoming quite wealthy through that influence as well. What Paul says is that is no motive to be a spiritual leader. Now, don't feel completely distracted if you stay at the Four Seasons. I'm not saying Christians don't stay at the Four Seasons. I'm saying if that's the reason you're in ministry, I'm going to kick you. I'm going to plant the shoe right in your butt. (laughs) If that's the reason you're in ministry, seriously, get out. And there are guys like that from the time of the Apostle Paul until today who enter ministry because of what kind of lifestyle it affords them. 
what kind of power and influence it makes available to them. They want to be teachers of the law, and they want to have all the privileges that come with it, but listen to this sharpened diamond. They don't know what they're talking about. Even the things that they soak from, I tell you, this is the way it is. No, it's not. Who told you that? Where did you come up with this? I don't know. I just feel like that's how it should be. And that's it. And they speak like with such authority and confidence. But they have no clue where they're getting any of it from. And I ask you, who's the bigger fool? The guy who stands in front of a crowd and says that stuff? Or the people who accept it? It's not just the wrongness of their content but that their whole motivation for being in ministry dishonored God and it was hurtful to the people because they were in it for themselves and not for anyone else. Let me just wrap things up this way. Just because someone speaks with authority and confidence doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. That's including me. Go home and check the Bible after I speak here. Make sure I'm not full of it. Whatever it is. And just because somebody speaks kindly and affirmingly and encouragingly to you doesn't mean they really care about you. You know, when we're younger, we're so fooled by a kind voice. All our friends were like, oh, totally, you know, you should do that. Oh, man, you deserve better than this. Oh, man. And everybody's being so nice to you. And you're like, oh, yes, whatever they tell me, that's what I'm going to do because they're so nice. I realized with my teens just how powerful being nice is. That's the number one evaluative category, right, for for teenagers is, are they nice or are they mean? That seems to be the cardinal sin today. You're mean. (laughs) Right away, I have nothing to do with you. You're nice. Give it to me. Whatever you got, I'm buying it. Just because someone is being nice to you doesn't mean they give a rip about you. I don't know how else to say it. Sometimes poison comes wrapped in honey. That's why grown-ups don't take pills from strangers. <laughs> and children do, right? At least most grown-ups don't take pills from strangers. Listen, when we were younger, we had no choice over the influences that shaped us. You didn't get to pick which man was your daddy. You didn't get to pick which woman was your mommy. You didn't even get to pick, really, what neighborhood you found yourself in. Sometimes your parents... Pack up all the things, move you from Chicago to Virginia. Terrible. And now you wake up and you've got all these new friends and all these new cultures and that's your life now. Those are the people who live in your neighborhood. You, you understand you have almost no say in who shapes you in childhood. Now all that stuff is just given to you. But then around high school, things start to change. And you realize you can actually start picking which voices shape you. My friend Steve's here today. I don't know if you guys know, but he's one of the the primary influences on my human development. In good and bad ways, he has shaped in so many ways the person I am. And it's rare to be able to say that about a friend, but perhaps more than many other people who were supposed to have that role, Steve ended up infecting me with all his diseases. And many times, I'm a better person for it. 
And I realized that around the time of the li- in my life where I met him was that time where I realized I could pick who gets to shape me. See, here's the thing. Once you let an influence into your life, you don't always get to control how they influence you. It's like a vampire. Once you let him pass the threshold of your door, they got you. So it seems to me that the main place where we have some power over the influences that shape us is in picking the right ones. And so I say to you, choose well. Choose well. Look at the content of what these people are telling you. Does it puff you up? Does it make you feel happy? Great. But does it also drive you towards God? Does it make Jesus loom larger in your life? Does it remind you that you are a person under authority, that you are not self-determining? You are not of your, of your own. You belong to the God who made you and saved you. Does the advice they're giving, the counsel they're offering, remind you of those things? Or does it simply make their voice and their influence bigger in your life? Look at what people are telling you, not just how sweetly they're saying it. Look at what they're saying. And if the content does not help you grow spiritually, it is of very little value in the end. And finally, I say, think about the motive with which these people seek influence in your life. What are they getting out of it? What are they asking for in return? What are they asking you to yield to them in exchange for their influence? I've seen it again and again in the church that as I care for you, as I serve you, you owe me something too. I want more power, more authority, more say, more influence in your life. I want to be able to speak into everything, not just speak into, I want to, in in the end, control you. That's what I want. And I feel I've earned it because I've been selfless in serving you. That is not healthy. In the end, a real life-on-life disciple-maker, a real benefactor is somebody who is in it for Christ's glory and for your well-being, not for their own power, not for their own influence. Is that true of the people who are shaping your life right now? Is it true of the people whose authority you have come under voluntarily? My prayer is that everyone at our church will experience the joy of life-on-life ministry. That you'll experience what a joy it is to pour yourself into the life of another human being. And to have somebody else pour themselves into you. And to feel like you're not going it alone. And that you don't have to be confused and frustrated. But I want to caution you, don't just engage in life on life with anyone. Be choosy. Be wise. Let the people in who love Jesus and who love you far more than they love themselves. Let people in who don't just have a lot of bluster and a lot of authority, but they also speak in a way that makes you more mindful of Jesus and not just more mindful of them. If you do that, I think life-on-life relationships will be among the richest, most enduring in your life. And I think you will grow tremendously as a Christ follower because of it. Um, Before we bow to pray, I'm going to keep saying this throughout this series, okay? 
most sermons, it's so easy to agree and then to file it away afterwards. In the moment we're sitting together, there's a lot of, yeah, right on. I get that. I agree with that. And then immediately when church is over, donuts and lunch take over and we file away that agreement in a special drawer. But I really want to encourage you, think right now about who is influencing your life. It scares me when I ask adults in our church, who's your mentor? Who's pouring wisdom into you for the sake of Christ? And so many say, no one. I say, well, that really scares me. I wonder who then is shaping your spirituality today. Because somebody is, believe it or not, you're being incredibly shaped by voices that you are unaware of now because you don't actually have one you've chosen. And so I really want to encourage you, this is not something just to agree with. It's something to follow through on. Please look for someone in your life with whom you can do life on life, fully engaged ministry towards spiritual growth. No matter what age you are, no matter how long you've been walking with Jesus, this applies to all of us. And I really want to encourage you to follow through on this and to do something in response. Let's pray together. One of the things I feel convicted about for us to pray on is, I think right now today, even before we can talk about inviting good influences into our lives, I think the Holy Spirit wants to convict some of us of the bad influences we have allowed to run amok in our lives. To control and shape us unchallenged. Maybe it's somebody that you consider your good friend. But everything they say to you makes you want to be more selfish, more self-righteous, more comfortable. Almost nothing they say to you draws out the best in you, the truly the best. They never challenge you to struggle or to suffer, but always to run for the hills, to swim for the open ocean. If the goal of life is to meet and follow Jesus Christ, then your truest friends are the ones who help you do just that. Is that true of the people you consider your closest friends today? So let's pray just a moment, trying to identify the voices and influences that are shaping us. And then just to say to God, please bring into my life the right ones. Let's pray that way for a while, and then the praise team will lead us into a final song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.